Jesus says, you don't have it in yourself. You can't do it in yourself. I'm not telling you to go do it. I'm telling you it's done. And I'll dwell in you and I'll live in you and I'll empower you to do it. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open up the scriptures to Colossians chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but this current climate that we find ourselves in, this season has been very unique and very confusing for many of us. And I've been talking to a variety of different pastor friends of mine, and every single one of them has kind of regurgitated the same feedback to me, and that is that this is one of the most difficult times that we've ever navigated as pastors, as ministers, in actually doing ministry. We're finding ourselves in kind of uncharted territory, uncharted waters, and it's already hard enough to do ministry, but yet we now can't be with people, and ministry is about people. And so it's just been very unique and very difficult. And ministry before and beyond the pandemic is a very difficult thing. There's a lot of expectations that people have on the church or on the ministry or on ministers. In fact, years ago, a digital survey polled hundreds of people and they were surveying them and they were asking them, what do you believe makes the perfect minister? Well, here was the result of their poll. The survey found that the perfect minister preaches 15 minutes, condemns sin, but never upsets anyone. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight, and he's also a janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothing, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives about $50 a week to the poor. He's 26 years old, but he's been preaching for 30 years. He's wonderfully gentle and handsome and has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends all of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time but with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He makes about 15 calls daily on church families and the hospitalized. He spends all of his time evangelizing the unchurched, and yet he's always in the church office when needed. Now, obviously, this is an unrealistic expectation upon ministers. But what does come to mind when we think of people who are called to do ministry, what does come to mind? Lately, with this coronavirus and the forced stay-at-home order and quarantine, every pastor I know is, is expressing the same sentiment. Ministry is difficult. Ministry is hard. It's even harder than it was before. We want to be building up our communities of faith. I want to build you up as a community of faith. But for a season, people have been viewing those same communities as a threat to our health. And we know ministry is only possible when we're doing it with people and two people, and yet we are unable to actually be with people. Does the Apostle Paul and does the book of Colossians have anything to say about ministry? Well, thankfully, yes. We've been studying the book of Colossians now for a few weeks. And remember, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, who at the time he writes it was in house arrest in Rome. At the time the letter that we're about to read was written, Paul is stuck at home. He's unable to leave. 
He's unable to visit the church that he's writing to encourage. You could say Paul is in a lockdown situation. And he recounts to the church in Colossae what we were before Christ and how Christ has now changed our lives. And in the section we're going to read today, he recalls how he is involved in getting the gospel message out as a minister and what the end result of ministry really is. And so the title for today's sermon is Christ-Centered Ministry. And what we'll see today is four aspects of Christ-Centered Ministry in our text. We're going to see, number one, that ministry involves a message. We're going to see that in verses 21 through 23. And then we're going to see how ministry infers a minister in verses 24 and 25 and who that minister is. Then we're going to see thirdly that ministry includes a mystery in verses 26 and 27. And we'll really understand what that idea of mystery really is. And then finally, we'll see number four, that ministry influences maturity. And we'll see that in verses 28 and 29. So that's our template today. Hopefully you're taking notes or you have your scripture journal. Let's go ahead and begin with that first idea that ministry involves a message. Look at verse 21 with me. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice what Paul says we were before the work of Christ. Notice with me three things. He says, you once were, number one, alienated. You were alienated. The word can be translated estranged. So because of our sin, our relationship to God, that fellowship that we could have had was broken. Now, based on the current situation that we all find ourselves in, this is not difficult to understand or to relate to. This idea of being separated or quarantined, you could say isolated or alienated. In this case, Paul says, that was you. You were alienated, separated, quarantined from the grace of God. He says, you once were. That is the status of all who were born into Adam. We entered the world spiritually dead, and that's why Jesus stressed the need for us to be born again. We were alienated from God as sinners. But even more so, you could say, than that, we were alienated from the promises of God as Gentiles, as those who were not of Jewish descent. So we were alienated. But number two, notice that Paul says, you once were hostile in mind. So our minds were at enmity with God. That's why repentance is necessary for us to believe. Our minds actually have to be changed. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then he says this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This was our status before Christ. We had a mind of hostility. We were enemies and adversaries of God. Well, then he says, thirdly, that you once were living with evil behavior. He says evil deeds. So our minds were at enmity with God, but not only that, we were continually in evil. We were actively harmful. We were actively hurtful. We were evil in our influence and our actions. And this evil behavior, these evil deeds that doesn't cause the alienation or the hostility. It's the other way around. You see, because 
we were alienated from God, because we were hostile in mind, then we begin to carry out evil behavior. Paul says you once were that. You once were reprobate. You once were loathsome, ignorant, abominable, wicked, and you were hostile to God. But notice verse 22. He says, but he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. You see, God's solution to our alienation is reconciliation. You know this from the last few weeks. We've been learning this, but this word reconcile means to restore to friendship or to restore harmony. We had been separated from God because of sin, but because of the cross, that separation has been reconciled. Romans chapter five says in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It was through Jesus's death that we had that relationship restored, that harmony brought back. It was not through our good works. It was not through our our attitudes or positive thinking or being great people for God. This reconciliation only comes through Jesus's finished work on the cross. This separation that we experienced, this alienation, was why man was driven from the Garden of Eden. It was the purpose behind the tabernacle. It was the purpose behind the temple, uh, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies. Jesus now opened a way for our approach back to God by tearing the veil. Matthew 27, 51 records this. And Jesus provided a new and living way through the veil. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20 tell us. And those who have not yet trusted in Christ have no reconciliation with the Father. We know from the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2 that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And so this reconciliation of Christ is the focus of our ministry as believers, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, though before Christ we were those three things, notice that we're now three new things, the way that we're presented now to God because of Christ. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, he says, in order to present you, number one, holy. So this word holy, of course, means separated for God or set apart. Now, often when we hear holy, we think of something negative, like holier than thou. But, but it's not a negative term by any means. It's basically this idea that God has separated you from this world for his purposes. So instead of being alienated from God, separated from God, he has now set you apart for himself, apart from this world. And he sees you now as consecrated and made right before him. But not only that, the rest of the verse, secondly, not only holy, but he presents you secondly as blameless. Another way of saying this is without blemish or without stain or spot. It has with it the idea of being ceremonially clean. Now, I don't know about you men who shop, but when I go to the store, I walk past all of the front of the store. I go right to the back of the store to the clearance section. And typically when I go to buy a clearance shirt, the reason it's reduced is because there's some type of blemish on the, on the t-shirt. Maybe there's a stain or there's a tear or there's just some type of mistake. And that's why it's on clearance. 
Maybe you don't. Maybe you buy brand new clothes. But all of us can relate to this idea of eating spaghetti or drinking juice, and all of a sudden it spills on your shirt, and you have this big stain. And what do you do? You run to your wife, and you say, hey, sweetie, is there any way that you can use Tide or bleach and remove this stain? And even when they do that, it doesn't always completely remove the stain. But see, Jesus presents us to himself as set apart holy and as blameless without any blemish. So your sin stains are washed away. They're forgiven and forgotten. And if that wasn't enough, thirdly, in verse 22, he says, you are above reproach before him. That means simply free from accusation. In other words, no one can bring an accusation against us that would reduce our right standing before God. Now we know from Revelation chapter 12 that Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. So Satan is not merely the tempter, though he is that. He's also known as the accuser. So what Satan does is he'll tempt us to sin. He'll entice us to enjoy something that makes us feel good. But ultimately, it's violating God's law. So Satan will say, oh, come on, you're missing out. Man, you'll really gratify your flesh and be satisfied if you do this. And so we take the bait and we do that that sinful thing we're tempted to do. And then right away, Satan says, oh, I can't believe you would do such a vile and wicked thing. You are such a despicable sinner. You see, Satan brings these accusations against us, but God will not entertain any accusation that would reduce our status as fully and forensically justified. We are right with God. And Paul says, this is how you're presented back to the Father. It's because of the cross. You're presented before him in these ways. And that phrase before him is often translated in Latin, this idea of quorum Deo, which means before the face of God. This is what we look at before the gaze of almighty God. He sees you as holy, as blameless, and above reproach. Warren Wiersbe says the most important thing in our Christian lives is not how we look in our own sight or in the sight of others, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4, but how we look in God's sight. We'll look at the next verse. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, don't be stressed out by the word if here in verse 23. Some people read that and go, wait, does that mean that I'm only holy, blameless, and above reproach before God if I continue in my faith? Does that mean I can lose my salvation? Is forgiveness and being free from accusation dependent upon me doing good and staying close to God? If I don't continue in my faith, does that mean that God can reject me and unsave me? You see, many Christians come to the if passages in the New Testament, and at first glance, they've stumbled over them with confusion. And this is one of those passages. But see, a review of the Greek language is helpful here. There are some clauses in the Greek language that we don't have in the English. And verse 23 is one of them. And it's what we call a first-class conditional clause. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it actually means is that when he says if, he's saying as if it's determined or fulfilled. Or if we were to use this in an English phrase, we would use the word if. Instead, we would say since. So Paul is simply saying that we will be presented to God as holy and without blemish, 
since we continue in faith, not moving from the hope of the gospel. He's saying this is a foregone conclusion. It's already fulfilled. You already are standing firm. And when he says not shifting from your hope, that word shifting was a phrase that could mean earthquake stricken. Remember the city of Colossae was located in an area prone to earthquakes. And so it is possible that he's alluding to this to encourage them to lay their roots down deep and not be moved, not be shifted by other teaching that would pull them away from the gospel that they had heard. You see, the New Testament is full of promises and blessings, often coupled with warnings, so that those who are just talking a good game but aren't really following God will realize this is not for them. And it encourages us who are really walking in the truth to keep going. McDonald says the scriptures teach, as in this verse, that true faith always has the quality of permanence and that one who has really been born of God will go on faithfully to the end. Continuance is a proof of reality. Of course, there's always the danger of backsliding, but a Christian falls only to rise again. Proverbs 24, 16. He does not forsake the faith. In other words, the gospel simultaneously encourages true possessors even while it warns empty professors. So are you merely a professor, one who professes to be a Christian, or you, are you a possessor, one who actually has received the gospel? Notice that Paul says, this is the gospel that you heard. In other words, it has been proclaimed to you. It's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This is the message of reconciliation that Paul was proclaiming. So our first point here is that ministry involves a message, the message of the gospel. But now I want us to move a little bit faster. Let's look at our second point, how number two, ministry infers a minister. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Now we really need to buckle up here, beloved, because this is one of those sections that is greatly misunderstood. The sufferings that Paul is mentioning here are not Christ's redemptive sufferings at Calvary. Paul is not saying that Jesus' afflictions on the cross were in some way lacking. No, the afflictions of the cross were finished once for all. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is impossible for men to add to the completed, finished work of Christ. There is nothing lacking in the atonement whatsoever. You see, instead, Paul is saying that when we suffer, we're suffering for Jesus, and his suffering continues even today. It's blasphemous to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not perfectly sufficient to atone for all men who come to faith. No, Paul is saying that his afflictions are on behalf of Christ. It's important for us to see this as we see the relationship that Jesus has with his church. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. And as Christ manifests his presence in our life, we're going to go through the same type of suffering that Jesus endured. So whatever reproach we bear for Jesus Christ as we walk 
this walk of faith, that's really reproach that's being directed at Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you catch that? Jesus says, rejoice and be glad that you're being reviled and persecuted and spoken falsely against on my account. You see, Paul says, I became a minister. Another way of saying that is I was made a minister. It was according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, to Paul, for the church. And when Paul says, I was made a minister, the word minister there is the Greek word diakonos, which means simply servant. This word servant is used 29 times in our New Testament, and it describes someone who waits on tables, who cares for the household in a way that in no way brings dignity or attention or honor to the one who's serving, but it has everything to do with the act of service that they render to the person they're serving. So this isn't a title of prestige, I'm a minister. It's actually more of a job description. Paul says, I've been called to serve. I am a minister. But see, that just describes what I do. I I serve. I care for others. And the purpose of this ministry, he says, is to make the word of God fully known. It's a stewardship given to a person for others. Now, we know that all ministry is ultimately connecting the word of God, or you could say the grace of God, truly the gospel of God, to people. And and that's what our vision is here at Shoreline. Our vision is simply to intersect the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in need, to intersect the gospel with people. That's what ministry ultimately is. God could have chosen to broadcast this gospel in the sky with angels. Hey, let me just do that. In fact, this week someone was flying a plane in the sky and they were, they were writing the words in the clouds, Jesus saves. God could have chosen to do that angelically, but instead he chooses to use people as his servants to others. So ministry is simply making the word of God fully known to people from other people that we call ministers. And Paul says, that was me. I was made a minister to allow the word of God to be fully known. Well, thirdly, we want to look at how ministry includes a mystery. So let's look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The false teachers in Colossae used this word mystery, but they used it differently than Paul means, that they meant to refer to the deep and hidden secrets that you would eventually attain if you worshiped their way long enough. This is not the word that Paul is meaning here. In fact, it's not even the way that we use the word mystery. When we think of a mystery, we think of maybe CSI or a a murder mystery novel where we try to find out who done it. We try to figure out the hidden messages, the hidden clues, and solve the unsolved mystery. That's not the idea here. A mystery in the Bible is something that was previously hidden or undisclosed, but now it's been revealed. It's now been made known in the new covenant. 
In fact, we have a few New Testament mysteries. In Ephesians 3.6 and Romans 11.25, one of those mysteries is the Gentiles being grafted into the vine. In Ephesians 5.32, we see the mystery of Jesus' relationship to his church, which is like a husband uh, to his bride. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we learn about the mystery of godliness and how the incarnation is now the revelation of God. We see in 1 Corinthians 15.51 that our resurrection bodies uh, are somewhat of a mystery. And then, of course, in Revelation 17.5, Babylon's fall is a mystery. But here, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ in you is a mystery that was previously hidden, but it's now revealed. And this mystery has great riches of glory, namely that God has included the Gentiles into his plan of redemptive grace. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is incredibly encouraging for those of us who are not Jews. We're Gentiles. We have been grafted into the vine. Now, what he says here in Colossians is a big difference from what he says in Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul says we are in Christ, but here in Colossians, he emphasizes that Christ is in us. When we became born-again believers, the Spirit of God came to reside within us. You could say that Christ is in you by faith. In other words, He is in control. And that's why elsewhere in the scriptures, we learn that we can grieve the spirit of God and why it says that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit because he dwells within us. And see, that's the fundamental difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. Religion comes along and says, hey, there's plight in the world and you can escape that plight by doing certain specific things. And then they tell you what to do, how to do it, when and why you are left alone to do it. But see, Christianity shows you that the plight is not outside of you, it's within you. And you've helped cause this plight, and you'll be judged for that. And yet God sent his son to take away that judgment, and by believing in him, you have eternal life. But see, it doesn't stop there. With Christianity, the power is imparted to you by the indwelling of Jesus Christ, by the indwelling of God's spirit. So it isn't just pointing to the path and saying, that's the way you need to kind of walk. That's the place you should go. But no, it's coming and giving you the capacity and the power to actually do it. Jesus says, you don't have it in yourself. You can't do it in yourself. I'm not telling you to go do it. I'm telling you it's done. And I'll dwell in you and I'll live in you and I'll empower you to do it. Ministry involves this mystery that Christ is in us by faith and that we as Gentiles are not excluded from the reach of his condescending grace and love demonstrated at Calvary. In fact, no people group, no race, no ethnicity is exempt or excluded from redemption. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, the nationality your family hails from, the country in which you are a citizen of. Christ has come once for all. And this mystery includes Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. Hope is not some external thing on the outside that is granted to us. It is within us, the hope of glory, Christ in us. Now we've seen today how ministry involves a message, a minister, and a mystery, but let's see the result of ministry. Number four, ministry influences maturity. Look at verse 28. It says, him we proclaim 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says that the purpose of ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. So ministry will influence maturity, the maturing of the body of Christ. Paul says the purpose of ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. So ministry will influence the maturity of the body of Christ. Paul's whole purpose is to present people fully complete in Christ. Now, there's a few ways that that's accomplished. First of all, notice it's in proclaiming Christ, not ourselves. Notice that Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim. Paul proclaimed Jesus, not his opinion. Paul proclaimed Jesus, not clever stories. Paul proclaimed Jesus, not politics. Paul preached Jesus, not himself. And if we want to see people complete in Christ, we must preach Jesus. Not only that, but secondly, to bring people to maturity, Paul says that we must warn and teach. So we preach Jesus, but included in that is warning and teaching. Much of the New Testament was written to warn and admonish believers who were beginning to entertain false doctrine. One person said that the job of the pastor or elder is twofold. It's to prepare good food for the kitchen and secondly, to keep poison out of the kitchen. And I like that. We must be warned against what is incorrect and we must be instructed more fully on what is correct. One of my pastor friends, Rob Salvato in California said this. He said, a church that loves its people will regularly warn them about the dangers of living for the flesh. They will warn about the wrath of God that will come against the sinner who doesn't repent of their sin. They will warn about the false teachers who come into the flock seeking to prey upon it. It's part of the task and the duty of the minister of the gospel to do this, to warn. And it is not always popular. So Paul says to present people mature, we got to proclaim Christ. We have to warn and teach. And thirdly, it's about seeking maturity as the end result. Notice that Paul's end game was to see all people presented maturely. He wasn't worried about gaining a big following. Paul wasn't worried about being the most known apostle or being a part of a church that had the biggest influence. You know, right now we're not able to enjoy sports and that's really a bummer. But when sports start back up, we're going to be tuning into our favorite team and our favorite sport and can't wait to get back into that. And every sport has a different scoreboard. If you were to see a scoreboard and it said three to zero, and the, you would say, well, which sport is that? If it was football, that would mean that that game was a very long and boring game. Three to zero was the final score. But see, if that were the score in hockey, that may have been a very exciting game. And so we have to know what scoreboard we're playing for. If we are in ministry for fame, for recognition, for honor, for church growth, for power, for prestige, for wealth, or for influence, then we are in ministry for the wrong reasons. You see, maturity is the ultimate result that we're striving for. We want to see men and women complete in Christ, and that's the ultimate win. Well, not only that, fourthly, to see a church come to maturity, 
Uh, Notice that Paul mentions working hard with God's strength. Look at verse 29. Paul says that he worked, he toiled, he struggled, but not in his own strength, not in his own power. He was doing work, but the work was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not accomplished by Paul's ingenuity. It was not Paul's former ministry experience. It was not Paul's human wisdom. It was accomplished through the energy that God powerfully worked within him. So when we proclaim Christ, when we warn and teach, when we work hard by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we look for spiritual growth as the end result, then we will see a church body brought to maturity. I love this section of scripture, and it was such a joy to study it this week and to realize there's so many layers to this. How do we apply this awesome passage of scripture? And so before we close today, I wanted us to apply it in three different ways. I want us to consider Christ-centered ministry in light of this passage. And let's look at these three application points. Number one, I want you to jot these down or take a picture of the screen as these pop up. Number one, we lean the focus upon the person and work of Christ. Just for a minute, I want to take you into the text on the screen. And so let's do this together. Look with me on the screen at these eight verses. Check this out. Notice with me that there are 15 direct references here to God, Christ, he, his, and him. 15, you can see them here in red. These showcase who the focus of this text and ministry truly is. It's it's upon God. Well, notice with me the references to you. In other words, those who are receiving the work of Christ. There are, if you notice with me, 10 references And we see those in purple. But then there are 11 direct references to I, me, or we, or Paul. So Paul acknowledges in kind of this teal color, you notice, that Paul acknowledges that, hey, there is a minister involved and there are people involved, but let's not lean the focus or emphasis upon either the minister or the people. You see, church, it's Christ who's reconciled us and who presents us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's Christ in us that is the hope of glory. It's Christ who we proclaim. It's Christ's power that powerfully works within us. So ministry that's centered upon a person, upon any person that is not the personal work of Christ is an ineffective ministry. We as ministers are not celebrities. We are servants. We're servants of Christ. And so we lean the focus upon Christ. We know that Christianity is not a code of ethics or just a creed to recite. No, one of my friends says true Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion in the world that is tied to its founder in such a way that you cannot separate the teaching from the founder. Just think about that for a minute. You can't separate Christianity from Christ. You can separate other religious leaders from their teaching and the teaching remains. So you can take Buddha out and you still have Buddhism. You can remove Joseph Smith and you still have Mormonism. You can separate Muhammad and Islam and you still have Islam, but you cannot remove Christ from his teachings and still have Christianity. Jesus is the focal point of all of his teachings. So Paul is showing us just in how much Christ is referenced in this text that we are to have in our ministry a focus on what Christ has done. 
So that means practically, we're not ever really going to have four ways to be a better mom, eight life hacks for productivity, or how to be holier in 30 days or less. We're never going to do that because ministry is not good advice. Ministry is good news. It's good news about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So I think we lean the focus upon the person and work of Christ. I think that's a great way to apply this. Secondly, if you're taking note, to apply this passage of Scripture, we steward, all of us, we steward what God has given us. Now, pastors and elders specifically need to remember that they have a stewardship, not a dictatorship. We are attendants to the church. We're not autocrats over it. Paul says in verse 25, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And so I argue often that ministry is not a career field that you pursue because there's money or prestige or honor. No, it's a calling upon a life and it's a stewardship of seeing the word of God fully known to a people. It's the hard work of ensuring that those people will be presented mature in Christ. Now that's specifically pastors and elders, but all of us, you beloved, have been given a stewardship. Now it may not necessarily be full-time ministry, but we still have something that God has entrusted to us. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You catch that? That's for all of us. We've all been given a gift and we're to use it as stewards of God's grace. Now, you may not have been given a commission specifically to plant churches, but you have been given a commission to make disciples. You may not have been given uh, an employment full-time as a ministry worker on a church's payroll, but you are a full-time Christ follower who's called to proclaim Christ and point others to Jesus. We're all ministers according to the stewardship that God has given us, and it's required for stewards to be found faithful in what he or she has been entrusted to do. So if you have been entrusted with the ministry leadership in a church, then you're to do what God has called you to do faithfully as unto the Lord. If you're raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you're to do that faithfully as unto the Lord. Whatever God has given us is a stewardship of, beloved, may we be found faithful. Number three, as we apply this passage of scripture, I want to remind us that we will toil, we will suffer, we will work, and we will proclaim. That really is what ministry is. We work, and that work includes the energy that he supplies to us. We will suffer, and that suffering is ultimately Christ's suffering. We will toil, but see that toil is glorious because lives are on the line and we have a front row seat of seeing people transformed from death to life. W.E. Sangster said, called to preach, commissioned of God to teach the word, a herald of the great king, a witness of the eternal gospel. Could any work be more high and holy? To this supreme task, God sent his only begotten son. In all the frustration and confusion of the times, is it possible to imagine a work comparable in importance with that of proclaiming the will of God to wayward men? I would argue no. It's the greatest task of all. Ministry is hard work, but it's glorious hard work. The message is not popular, 
but it's true. The need is unrivaled, but the strength to carry on is limitless. Christ-centered ministry involves the message of the gospel, and it involves humble people who have been called to be good stewards of this message. We reveal this glorious mystery that the Gentiles can now experience the hope of glory, Christ in us. And to the very end, we work hard until all the church is complete in Christ. As we close this morning, I wonder what Paul would say if he were asked by a church to fill out a resume. Maybe a church was looking to hire someone and they come across the Apostle Paul. And they said, hey, we'd love to hire you, Paul. Would you give us your resume? Just imagine having a pastoral candidate who sent you this response. This is probably what Paul would have said. Well, I have some success in ministry as a preacher, a writer, and an administrator. But I'm over 50 years old and I've never stayed long anywhere. Sometimes I've had to leave a ministry in a hurry because I tend to cause riots. I've actually been jailed three or four times, but I didn't do anything wrong. My health isn't good, but I've found the strength to travel far and wide. I don't get along very well with religious leaders in towns where I've preached. In fact, some have threatened and attacked me. I never keep good records. I've even forgotten the names of some people I've baptized. I apologize in advance for the scars and marks all over my body. I have been beaten on multiple occasions, stoned, and even left for dead. If you appoint me, I will do my best. However, I can, I can guarantee you that I'm not going to please everyone. If I were here to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of God. Now, most churches would never call that guy back as a candidate. But see, God used this man greatly because he was surrendered to Christ. He was faithful with what God had entrusted to him. And he was used, arguably in a greater way, than any other Christian before or after him to help build others up in the faith. And see, that's our commission as well. I leave you with 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you this morning that you have given us the great commission to go into all the world and disciple the nations. Lord, we thank you that we are all called to minister the gospel of grace to our neighbor, to those who need to hear. And Lord, we may feel overwhelmed a bit as we look at the scope of the world and, and those who have not yet heard the good news. And we could be tempted to just give up and be discouraged. But Lord, I pray that we would labor and we would suffer and we would work and toil with the energy that you provide. We thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we thank you for the message of reconciliation that the gospel is in such a dark time, in such a dark world that needs to know the light and the hope of Christ. So Lord, give us the power of the spirit to speak the good news. Give us boldness to tell others that we can be changed, that we can be made right with God because of the finished work of Christ. Lord, we pray for anyone watching this who does not yet know Jesus, that this would be the day of salvation. They turn from their sin, they would turn to Christ. And God, we pray for our church family, that during this difficult time, we would learn what it's like to do ministry. It's just being involved in people's lives, praying for them, encouraging them and pointing them to the finished work of Christ. So Lord, we love you. We ask for your help during these difficult days. 
Help us, Lord, to not put weird expectations on others, but Lord, just to be willing to be a diakonos, a servant to all. We thank you for your example, Jesus, in that. Help us to follow your example. And it's in Christ's name alone that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to close with the end of Philippians in our benediction today. The end of Philippians, Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. It's difficult nowadays for us to greet one another, but as we kind of um, disperse this morning, as we turn off this video and as we go about our day, let's take the time to greet one another. Maybe it's a text, maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's jumping on Zoom or FaceTime, but let's take this to heart that we have an opportunity, even being separated, uh, to greet one another in the Lord. So um, let's take time to do that this week, church. If you have someone on your heart, reach out to them and bless them. But we love you guys. God bless you. Have a great week. Don't forget to go onto our website to register for next Sunday and continue to keep an eye out for our digital bulletin that comes out every Friday night. We love you guys. God bless you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.